John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. It's difficult to underestimate the daring, originality, and power of Spike Lee's third film, Do the Right Thing. From its iconic opening through the development of each character and the building tension towards the tragic climax, Do the Right Thing is, without question, a true masterpiece. Now there's so much to discuss about this remarkable movie. The filmmaking alone with incredible cinematography, music, production design, screenwriting, editing, and of course iconic performances would be enough to fill several episodes of The Cinephiles. However, Do the Right Thing is more than just a masterclass in filmmaking. It's a movie that drives into the heart of issues that are as difficult, emotional, controversial, and important today as they were over 30 years ago. To help us navigate these complicated issues, we welcome back to The Cinephiles director, writer, and actor, Andre Gordon. So if you haven't seen this incredible film, the right thing for you to do is to visit cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Do the Right Thing, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss our feelings about the increasing length of popular films. So that's a discussion of long movies on Patreon and Do the Right Thing, part one, with special guest Andre Gordon this Friday on The Cinephiles. Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got to fight the powers that be. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing the season of Lee. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, and voiceover artist. And massive, massive Spike Lee fan, as is Steve as well, and a massive, massive fan of this film, a seminal film in both our lives, Steve. Uh, and I'm excited to get into it uh, with our special guest. Absolutely. I mean, this film was, as I, as I said, as we did our, our first episode just on Spike Lee, he's hugely, hugely influential on me. And 
you, those of you listening who listen to that episode, you've already heard the voice of our very special guest. That's right. Our special guest here. He is a director, writer, actor, founder of Four Horsemen Films, a man I'm proud to call my friend and a guy who, uh, uh, who's who been hanging and banging with me for over 20 years. Uh, and he is currently <laughs> residing in the great state of Florida, raising his beautiful family and building his big business. He is the great Andre Gordon. Andre, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, guys. It is amazing to be here, especially given that we're talking about the icon, the legend, Spike Lee. Having dug deep into him for the last several weeks and been studying, I just, my admiration for the guy just goes up and up and up. And uh, Andre, I was wondering, do you remember when you first came to the film, Do the Right Thing? You know, I was a young, I'm 42 now, so I watched it a, a little while after it actually came out. But I wasn't really a filmmaker at the time. I was just a fan and I was an actor. And when I when I watched it, the social messages in it really hit me. But then going back and rewatching it from a filmmaker's perspective and then knowing how he tried to hit home and successfully all of the social messages that are still applicable today and current today, it just blows my mind, the timelessness of his writing. Andre, I want to ask you something, man. I mean, you, you talk about how you came to the film, but I mean, as a black man, talk to me about this because you, your experience is so unique, Andre, because obviously you come from the Jamaican heritage in this country. So you have an, an interesting, unique path when you're uh, from another, when your heritage is from another country, but you're black in this country because most people don't delineate the difference when they look at the situation. So where were you at in your life when you saw this movie? How did you like look at race relations? What were you dealing with? How much racism had you experienced? So by the time you saw this movie, what was the effect on you as a black man watching this movie and watching the things that were um, uh, tackled in this movie, I guess, for lack of a better term? Growing up in Miami, it's mostly a Hispanic you know, there's a pocket pockets of Jamaicans. Right. There's we have a lot of Cubans, we have a lot of uh, Colombians and Argentinians. So I really kind of vibed with the fact, you know, Spike, Spike and his relationship, his his. Uh, I mean, I didn't have a son <laughs> that age, <laughs> but but just him being with a Latina, that was that was pretty much my selection um, mm-hmm. here in Miami, and where I grew up. I grew up in West Kendall, and West Kendall was you know, a predominantly Hispanic area. And then when I, uh, when I went to uh, high school, it was a predominantly Jewish area, but I had grown up around Hispanics and I had grown up around Jamaicans, but the, I, which I didn't see this in, in, in Spike Lee's movie. um, But the, the flack that I took for being in relationships with Hispanics, with, uh, mm-hmm. it was from, from, you know, from uh, other black women, mm-hmm. uh, at the time it was, it was extreme. So watching the movie, uh, you know, I, I really connected on that sense, but I, I loved the fact that it wasn't really mentioned. So mm-hmm. to me, I felt like, Oh, I'm doing something that's not out of, I'm not abnormal. <laughs> this is just this guy's life. And it's not even like a thing. It's just how it was, right? Yeah. So it is almost validating to me that, you know, your surroundings don't. And by the way, she she was beautiful. Um, mm. or, I mean, breathtaking. That was her big intro too. 
But I think watching it then, I, I was really hit by a couple things, things that my dad has told me growing up. He always told me, hey, how you present yourself is going to be important. He always told me, you cannot win a fight against the police, so don't. He always told me, love is going to win through hate. If you go angry and you go hateful, it's only going to spur more problems. And I remember watching that thinking, wow, he's really showing that, yes, there are problems with the police, but hate and anger and really lashing out really do make this confrontation not just about race, but it just it flames the fire. And then looking at it now as a 42-year-old man, given everything that's happened, it's like, hey, my dad was right. If I get pulled over, I'm like, my hands are 10 and 2. Like, everything's out. I'm not, fi- I'm not fighting anybody. Yeah, you're docile as hell. Yeah, you have to be, yeah. You know, it, it really struck me. It really did. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't know if we're going into the scenes later on, but there are some scenes that really just like, oof, you know. Well, we really, will de- really we, we, we're definitely going, going into the scenes. Um, it's yeah. so interesting to me that you say love and hate, because all I can just picture is Radio Rahim, love right. and hate. You know. Which is, of course, inspired by Night of the Hunter with Robert, Robert Mitchum did on his knuckles and stuff. Yeah, which is great. Now, for me, it was like, I mean, uh, I, had, I had rented She's Gotta Have It's so Why. Spike Lee was in my purview. I knew about him. I'd read those film magazines. So when this first trailer dropped, along with that Public Enemy song, Fight the Power, which I had become a Public Enemy fan uh, from It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, I it was uh, the mere, the combination of both hit me at the right time. And I remember going to see this opening weekend. I think I went with my best friend, Maurice Jones, and we watched this film. And it was a film that absolutely left us shell-shocked at how honest and authentic it was about race relations. It challenged you with so many complex characters that you could cheer for, not like, and cheer for again throughout the whole movie. And I went back multiple times to see this film because I wanted to really savor it and enjoy it. And I was super frustrated that more people hadn't seen it in my high school and kind of were turned off by the fact that they dealt with race and all of it. It really opened my eyes up to how much people want to deal with race and how much people don't want to deal with race in this country, which is essentially Spike's point throughout most of this movie. So uh, a very seminal moment in my life that changed my perception of race relations in this country, for sure. And what can be done with films to highlight race relations in this country. It's it's funny, Andre, in some ways I have a similar experience to you. Not seeing it, I saw it in the movie theater. I was in college. I already described it in the last episode. But, hmm. you know, this is one of the movies that blew up my brain. This is one of the movies that changed entirely the way I saw the world and I think changed my future on some levels. But what's interesting is watching it now. I watched it over and over again back in the day on had it on VHS and watched it a lot. Watching it now for the show, I had been emotionally profoundly changed by it. But now watching it, just looking at the filmmaking, it is... It's astounding what this young guy did. You know, when they when you do your uh, gymnastics routine or your high dive and they rate things on degree of difficulty, <laughs> this is not an easy movie, man. This is an extremely complicated, difficult movie, and it is executed almost perfectly. When you look at, and I mentioned this before, when you look at how hard it is to carry a role as an actor, and, and this is, you know, his coming up party, so to speak. Yeah. He really... <laughs> delivered a performance of a lifetime and it is shot and delivered so stylistically so beautiful it's almost theatrical 
it's almost like you feel like you're at the theater, like you're really immersed. And we talked about how it's it's interesting to watch his films now and then. Then he's that was his signature. Mm. Get right in the face of the audience, put all the issues and the people right in, in your face. Allow the culture and allow the background and the surroundings to really inform um, the cinematography. It, it's it's amazing. It really blew my mind watching it again and again and again, and then watching it now. I'm like, man, this guy's a genius. Yeah. This young guy's a genius. Yeah, it's still topical today, as you said earlier, Andre, but it's also still as powerful and still just like going back and watching a film from the 19. I mean, I was watching 1940s. I was watching Citizen Kane for like an hour yesterday on TCM. Just, you know, and, and go, like God, this still affects me. This still moves me. And seeing this film 33 years later for this show, it still moves me. It still affects me. It's kind of mind-blowing to think about how far past in our past it was, yet it still carries that kind of classic feel to it in that this was a film that will hold up for multiple generations and be one of the greatest films ever made and you get the same vibe when you watch it because of the attention to detail and the expertise with which spike lee directed this movie and this is his second feature film or third feature film rather incredible i i couldn't agree more i'll give you a little bit of pre-production i actually don't have that much i think hmm. you know the, the, it is somewhat influenced there's an alfred hitchcock presents episode called showing for dead which is kind of speculates on how the heat can affect violence and that's mm. we could say that that's to some degree an inspiration, but the real inspiration I think for Spike is living in Brooklyn, experiences within that community. There's the Howard Beach incident, which is a you know right. uh, a car breakdown with some African Americans at a, at a pizza joint, and you know violence resulted, you know racially motivated violence that resulted in the death of one of them, and the uh, Eleanor Bumpers murder, and this is an elderly woman who was killed by the police, and you know she was in a being evicted from her apartment in the Bronx and you know, the, and, and, and we looking at it today, those are two stories that Spike mentioned at the time. There's more and more and more and more. And so yeah. like, that's the real inspiration, I think. And Spike wrote this screenplay in two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Just take a moment. I can't write a page in two weeks. I can't imagine <laughs> the whole script in two weeks. That's phenomenal. So Spike finishes the script. I think he had done school days with Paramount, so he had to deal with Paramount, brings the script to Paramount. I could totally picture this meeting. The executives are going, Spike, we love it. It's great. We just have a couple of notes. And apparently the notes are what Spike described as they wanted to change the ending into what he called the We Are the World ending. Oh, God, yeah. And he said, nope. And he walked out, and he went to Universal, and Universal bought it immediately. Immediately. Wow. Yep. And the other thing that's happening is that uh, she's got to have it was shot like a guerrilla film. No, mm. you know, no permits, no unions, no, you know, they just went and shot it, I think, in 12 days. School Days is a non-union film. This is his first union film. Well, the unions in New York at the time, they looked uh, a lot more like me than they look like Andre. <laughs> and Spike <laughs> made a deal. <laughs> uh, yes, they were they, they they were not as handsome as uh, as our guest. <laughs> so Spike Spike was like, "Look, we'll do a union film, but I got to see some more colored faces and some more women's faces working on this project." And this is something that Spike has done throughout his entire career: is brought more and more people of color into these unions, onto these projects. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that has, you know, begun to change the face of the film industry, which meant we still obviously 
have a lot more work to do in that direction. Yeah, I'd like to throw something out here, Steve, for just a second. You mentioned Universal Pictures, and I'm looking at their films they released in the 1980s, and certainly there is a desire to push the boundaries on things here. They released the the Milagro Beanfield War. Mm-hmm. They released uh, Brazil, which is really you know an, an exploration of societal stuff that's happening uh, there and the way he presents it uh, uh, throughout that movie. Uh, for sure. And then you've got a number of other gorillas in the mist is universal pictures. Mm-hmm. So that's exploring the idea of, of, of what she went through there with the, with the gorillas there talk radio, which is that Eric Bogosian film based on his play. You do the right thing in 1989 and born on the 4th of July, which is just a few months later. So right. films that have a record of kind of attacking systemic things in our world, universal picture seems like they weren't afraid to do that in the back half of the 1980s. So, very interesting. so you're saying there were, there were large studios that were making movies <laughs> that were about something important. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't just make the future. Don't get me wrong, but still they were, they were doing this, which I liked. It was a good balance. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I want to say about the production, just cause it's just, just fascinating to me is this is it was like an eight week shoot it's mm. eight weeks to shoot one day it's one day you know right the whole film yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. like that's all yeah. we're, everything is about one day for two months of shooting this film right one 24-hour period so in the past obviously we don't care about swearing on the cinephiles we no. said a lot of words here but words that we have avoided is you know there's certain racial slurs particularly the n-word that people feel very uncomfortable with and when in editing the show, putting in clips of the show, I tried to avoid putting them in. If we had to put them in, we usually bleep them out. Yeah. And John and I and Andre, we've kind of been discussing this. And the fact is that Spike Lee is going right at these issues. And to some degree, we feel in some cases, it might be disrespectful to the filmmaker to not include the words that he created for this film. And so I know these words can be very troubling for some people. I know they can be very difficult to hear. So we just wanted to give you a warning that that is what's going to happen in the course of this of this podcast. And so did you know ahead of time? Uh, speaking of which, shall we jump into the movie? Jump into jump. I think one of the things that gets continually underestimated, particularly in these early films of Spike Lee is his dad mm, that music yeah. from bill lee so powerful yeah. and, and of course branford marcellus is part of it and and the thing is it's to- i think about all the other film scores that are going on at the time mm. you, know, you think of john williams and jerry goldsmith and you know all these you know you mentioned back to the future mm. this score sounds nothing like anything anyone else is making and then we get to the opening fight the power fight the power fight the power I think this is still to this day a shocking opening. Rosie Perez and Fight the Power. Yeah. What do you guys what do you guys think of watching this? First of all, the music, again, you talk about film scores sounding nothing like this. <laughs> Not only nothing sounding like like Fight the Power, but you have this hot, beautiful, curvaceous Latina mm-hmm. breaking it down and almost like angrily. Um in 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 energy sync with the music and changing her wardrobe throughout. It, it was like I, I've never seen a director risk just having an actress dance. <laughs> and it wasn't anything specifically choreographed, even it felt like it felt like it was just her emotion. I'm sure that he, she was directed, 
but I wa- I was just watching the whole time. I didn't I didn't turn away. I didn't think, oh, this is like going on too long. I was just transfixed. So I thought to myself, this immediately sends a statement to anybody watching that this director is not afraid. And this director is going to tell the story the way that he wants to. And we, if you look at the opening scene, it establishes how important that song is going to be to the entire film. It was, it was, to me, it was great. Simple, but great. To me, it spoke right from the beginning. You have, as you said, Steve, Bill Lee's music, which is a, a connection to the past, a connection uh, to um, the jazz or to that kind of saxophone, that kind of legacy of the past with Charlie Parker and what have you there. And then, boom, you immediately make a quick turn to a modern song that is about fighting, that is about, uh, you know, uh, highlighting the racism in this world, uh, you know, bringing up Elvis Presley, bringing up John Wayne. I mean, <laughs> mother F him and John Wayne. I mean, that is, I remember, I mean, I was, I'm a John Wayne fan. I'm an Elvis Presley fan. I remember hearing that lyric going, oh, I get it. I, I mean, it's an awesome rap lyric, but I, I may not like it, but I also get it, you know, and so it forced you to come to terms with it and then you and then you pair that with first of all the the cinematography the lighting design of the red against the backdrop of these of this uh, of the street there that they're going to be in in that area of New York of Brooklyn and then seeing her as you said Dre changing clothes but also the 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 power and the strength and the sexuality and the frustration and the anger and the heat of everything that she's doing in conjunction with the song so yeah, you may be turned on by her, but you're, but she, but the other side of it is that she is showing you her pain, her frustration, her anger yes. as yes. as a person of color in this world with this. You know, I mean, the red and black backdrop; those are typical colors you use to convey anger and uh, terror and fear and what have you. So uh, that's all uh, right in the background of her as she's dancing, and even the last shot of her is just her pelvic region thrusting as it says written and directed by spike lee so spike knew what he was doing here spike is provoke he's trying to be provocative he is poking he's putting it in your face he is may he's trying to wake you up to what he is going to be talking about in this movie and so i loved this as an intro it's not your standard intro to any movie you compare this to the adventures of babysitting where she's <laughs> singing and then he kissed me as she's dancing around which is in its own way attractive and, and sexy in some way for Elizabeth Shue. But she's talking about then he kissed me as a relationship. Here is this fight. The power is a balance to that all both in the 1980s showcasing what this film is really going to be about. So just fascinating how he used um, the colors and the look and uh, Rosie Perez and that song to convey what he was going to be talking about. I think it's one of the most artistically aggressive openings of a movie I've ever seen. And you just immediately, it's like it blows you back into your seat and you're like, oh, what am I, what am I in for here? Super theatrical, the way that it's lit, the way she's up against these flat backgrounds, the choices of the costumes, obviously the music. And I'll give you a couple, a little info on how this came about. So first of all, Spike knew he needed an anthem. Yeah. So he goes to Chuck D and says, I need an anthem for my next movie. He goes off, writes a song and Spike basically goes, no, no, it's not enough. <laughs> Six weeks later, he comes back with fight the power and, and what he said is he went to this. I just think this is funny when he finally saw the film and Spike had told him it's going to play multiple times in the movie. Mm-hmm. He didn't know that it was going to play that many times in the movie. <laughs> and Chuck D was like, no one's going to buy this record. They're going to be so sick of this <laughs> song. They're not going to buy it. 
that was not true. <laughs> That's not what happened. Um, and just about, about Rosie Perez, because I like how this came about. First of all, she's also born in Brooklyn. She's one of 10 kids, spent a lot of time in foster care. She was a soul train dancer. And this is how Spike met her. He's in LA. He's having his birthday party. They rented out a, a whole club. And he sees this woman dancing to the song, doing the butt <laughs> on top of <laughs> a speaker. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> It goes, it goes up to her and says, look, you got to get down out of there. I, I'm renting this place out. They're going to sue me if you fall. And basically, he starts talking to her, and everything she said, he laughed at. And she starts to get more and more angry that he's laughing at her voice and what she's saying. And he basically puts out his head and said, you know, this is fate. And you're going to be an And she never acted in anything before. And he's like, you're going to act in my movie. That, that's, how, that's how this whole thing wow. came about. Can I say one more thing, too, that, that, I, that I thought about that opening? What I thought was also interesting for me is as I'm watching it, as beautiful as she is, I don't know about you guys, like I wasn't turned on. I no. felt like she was angry. Yeah, I felt yeah. her anger and I felt like she was in pain. And it was a beautiful juxtaposition of this uh, lioness almost mm -hmm. and, and, and her using her body to uh, – make sure we're watching but the expression that i felt was just anger and her pain and and her sadness and i don't know if you guys got the same thing but i was really struck by that yeah absolutely, absolutely. well is it weird to say that i think i, I tried to put it the right way that this dance sequence that she, it, she is sexy but it is not erotic you yeah. know I, yeah yeah i think so too yeah, yeah absolutely like, like it's a really interesting thing and then right at the end of this incredible opening we go into this extreme close-up of the alarm clock and samuel jackson's lips waking us up wake up wake up wake up wake up up you wake up you wake up you wake up you wake and this is uh mr senior love daddy having his this narration through this whole film he like it's like he weaves the neighborhood together, I think. Yeah. And, and it's so, and it, you know, it's so funny because we've been talking about the emergence of Samuel L. Jackson because we, you know, we've we've seen him in Jurassic Park. We've seen him in all these films where he was around and then suddenly he explodes, you know, in the mid 90s. Yeah. And by the way, he went to Morehouse uh, a few years before Spike Lee was there um, and they had met. Uh, he was still in that uh, neighborhood and that's when they had met. Wow. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! And we're going to go meet the characters. In a lot of ways, this is like a this is like a love song to Brooklyn, this whole movie. And we should say uh, Ernst Dickerson's the cinematographer. They met in film school at NYU. This movie looks unlike anything we were watching in the 80s, I think. Mm -hmm. A thousand percent. Uh, by the way, one thing that was interesting is that he insisted that it was a north-south street rather than an east-west street. And uh, I bet, Andre, you have uh, some guesses of why he might have wanted that in terms of where the sun is, <laughs> is that there's a lot of stuff that would mess you up if you're on an east-west street. The lighting in regards to the sun was incredible. There are so many shots that things are beautifully backlit, not overexposed at all. It's just, it's just this, it's like money shot. Almost every time when it's coming in, in terms of the sun. But I felt like the heat was so consistent and so oppressive and the sun felt like so, so hot and so big and so looming that it's almost like you expected things to get to a boiling point, so yeah. to speak, because of the sun. 100% agree. And the first person we see that's dealing with the sun 
is the mayor of the block, Ozzie Davis, lying in that bed. I've laid in that bed in a hundred something degrees with no AC, just <laughs> just feeling awful, you know. <laughs> he is such the central core of this film, so much part of the heart of this movie. In the design, right? You look at the production design right off the bat, right? He, you can tell he's living in a place that's not, you know, the, uh, that well kept. Uh, looks a little, uh, a little bit poor in terms of the, the look of it. He's got two empty beer bottles by his bed there, by the, um, by whatever. He's got the ch- the chintzy little fan on the right side of him. So it's a perfect introduction to this character. He can't actually keep all the sun out. His curtains are not, you know, like what you would find nowadays, the sun blocking curtains. It is a very <laughs> thin rags he has up there, a thin uh, fabric material that he has up there. So he can't keep the sun out and try to keep it cool. So right off the bat, you have an idea. And he's probably had that bed for 30 years, 40 yeah. years. So you have a great character introduction without him saying a word until he pulls off his uh, blanket and goes, God damn, it's hot. So, yeah. And the next character we meet is Smiley. Good morning. My name is Smiley. Here's what's crazy. And I can't, there are things that I found out that I just can't believe is true. Okay. But it, he's not, he wasn't in the script that Spike wrote. Wow. There's no Smiley in the script when he wrote it. And that Roger Smith lived, there's a whole bunch of people that lived right in this neighborhood. It sounds like shooting of this film people would come down and there's a real strong artist community in Brooklyn at the time. So musicians and artists and all these people come down. Roger Smith lived there and he came down and said, no, no, I need to be in this movie and kept pushing himself. And he created this character of Smiley and basically kept every morning he's there inserting himself. And finally Spike goes, I guess I'm going to put you in the movie. <laughs> like, like all of this, like the stuff he says, it's based on, uh, there was a man who would sell newspapers on the street corner. And that's kind of where that voice came from. He, the Walkman and the headphones and all this stuff is his idea. I don't know if Martin and Malcolm are his idea that feels, cause it's so thematically linked to the film. Yeah. yeah I wonder if that came from spike, but, but like, he just kept coming and we see this guy and I'm sure you have had guys in neighborhoods that you live that were this, you know, he's out there every day. He's got this massive stutter and he has these pictures of Malcolm and Martin that he wants to sell. And he's fighting against apartheid. And he's just one of the characters on our block. And you know, Roger is an incredible actor uh, who, you know, had a, I think he had a one person show for years where he played Huey Newton, the the co-founder of the black Panthers. Right. And look, this guy went to Yale this guy's from Berkeley, California. He just oh, had you know that. Yeah, he's from Berkeley. Is where he was born. Uh, his his uh, mom was a dentist. His dad was a judge. Uh, that's the combo of here. So this is a supremely intelligent guy, and what? But of course, politically active. So clearly, yeah, he saw because he's so intelligent. He saw what Spike was doing, which is why he wanted to be a part of it. And the character Smiley works so well in the movie because. You feel sympathy immediately because he has a stutter. He's holding up a picture of the only time it's ever been documented that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X met each other. Uh, I think it was 1964 when they met. And so and he's doing this thing to show, once again, a little more of the black experience. Right off the bat, Spike is introducing you to something that is an element of the black experience. The, ex- the exposure of, quote, unquote, love and hate, right? The idea that Martin Luther King represented love. Malcolm initially representing hate initially, of course, later in life, uh, embracing more of the Mal- uh, Martin Luther King approach to things, but certainly at that time. So it's, it's he's already laying kind of subtly this groundwork of the two different philosophies that are that have been uh, spoken about 
when you've looked at how civil rights came about here in this country in the black community and watching that as an intro is fast and a shot from below and behind him i think is a church or something there saying yep. jesus or something and so yeah okay okay i gotta say something so so i didn't know he's from berkeley Literally, you know how I was a minute ago, I was saying, like, I'm sure you had that person in your neighborhood. What I almost said was going to school in Berkeley. There were all (laughs) these characters. There was a there there were literally there was the bubble lady. There was the naked guy. There was a guy. I mean, these are literally characters that walked around the streets of Berkeley because post 60s, post free speech movement, post People's Park. There are a lot of people that were a little different that hung around. And there was one guy whose name was we called him rare because he was this kind of big muscular white guy who walked around and yelled rare at the top of his lungs and then did a lot of pull-ups. And it was just like, and so knowing that he's from there, all of this makes so much more sense to me because Smiley is 100% like a character you would have seen on the streets of Berkeley in the seventies and eighties. Absolutely. And I do want to say one thing before we leave. I love that Roger Smith, Hmm. when he says, this is Malcolm. And this is Martin King. Now they are dead. He gives that character that pause, that sad pause of understanding the loss of these two men to the black community. Understand they were assassinated. And a lot of people feel it was the government behind killing both Malcolm and Martin Luther King uh, Jr. uh, with the lone gunman stuff. Uh, that seemed to only happen during one decade in this country's history. You know what else I love about this scene? Um, in the first scene, we're we're in the bedroom. It's like you know those two golden hours uh, when you're filming sunrise and sunset, and and we see the first golden hour. And and like, as you said, Steve, it, it, this takes place in one day, right? So by the time we get to Smiley, it's incredible. And this, I I don't think it's by accident. Yeah. The change in the sunlight is equal to the ratio of how long the day is in the movie yes, and to where the sunlight would be over Smiley. So even though it's a, just a, you know, a couple minutes later, we're not still in that same really amber yellow light. We can feel like the, 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 the clock is ticking and moving within the time frame of the film that we have, which is still beautiful lighting. And as you said, John, still shot uh, from, from below. Uh, giving us this vantage point of this new character. But I, I, you know, I'm just, again, blown away by these little things that, and here's why I say this, and and this may not be popular, but sometimes people think that black directors are not as smart. We rely completely just on emotion. Really? Like, oh, you just, I heard it. And this is, this is uh, surgically timed. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not just like, oh, you know, black people on the street and do, you know, riffing. Like, this is filmmaking. This is art. And we're only a few minutes in. Just turn no. the camera on. They'll figure it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is like, that's what I mean. Like, the, the degree of difficulty is so high in this movie. Yeah, like, yeah. that that's just insane to me that people would have that thought. And, and speaking of Spike Lee, we're going to meet his character, Mookie, and we're moving in to him and his apartment with his sister. And what is he doing? He's counting his money because one thing we're going to hear about Mookie is he's going to get paid. Yeah, that's the... Yeah thing he says and i've been thinking and thinking about what trying to understand what spike is saying i gotta get paid gotta get that money mm-hmm. like what because it's very interesting it becomes more interesting the more i think about it i'm sure we'll revisit it yeah i mean my initial thoughts are yes that's how he's presented how many of us 
have been in that stage in our life where we're like, okay, we got to get paid. And how many of us are willing to overlook certain things from either our employer or a company because we got to get paid. And so I think that's the beginning of this idea of Spike's character, Mookie, as the film goes along and certainly the connection with the, with the conversation with the bugging out. And then later what he does at the end of the movie with that trash can, there's a conversation to be had about whether you like or don't like what, what Mookie did but this beginning here laying the groundwork that this guy is constantly worried about his money, constantly thinking about his money, whether he works hard for it or not. Certainly Pino <laughs> would say no. Other people might say yes. Uh, but it's out there uh, as a uh, as a conversation that builds throughout the movie. And, but if you notice, as he's counting the money, the, the, this vantage point typically is as if someone's actually going to be entering the room. So I, mm. you know, when I initially That's watched it, I thought someone was going to be entering the room and nobody did. And I was like, oh, he even turns and looks to where the person who would be entering is. It's almost like Spike is like, all right, I got him. They're watching me. But this isn't a smooth tracking shot on a dolly. It's, it's very shaky. I, what I love about that setup is what we're learning about Mookie is even as he's counting his money, he's not solid on it. He is, he is shaky about it. He's unstable with it. And as the as the camera shakes, he's 10, 15, 25, 20. Uh, it's almost in rhythm. And we're, we're feeling this rhythm of him being off balance in terms of his money. And the camera is is demonstrating that. And I thought it was brilliant. That's, Dude, that's a great fucking point. Yep. That is brilliant. Yeah. It's creeping around him and moving as if it's about to take its money, the money from him. And, you know, Spike wearing the Michael Jordan jersey right off the bat, yeah. too. You know, the Mars Blackman connection a little bit there, too. Yeah. Wearing the Jordan jersey. So, yeah. And then it's so it's so misleading the way I think this is handled at first is that he leans over and there's this woman in the bed asleep. And naturally, I just go, well, this is his girlfriend. This is his wife. And he starts playing with her lips. Mookie, why always bother me when I'm sleeping? Wake Mookie. up. Wake up. And it's not, this is his sister. This is both his actual Spike Lee sister and his sister in the film. And man, messing with someone on their one morning off is not cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's weird to me, like, uh, I, you know, I have a relationship with my sister. She's older. I was never on a bed with her playing with her lips. That, would be, that was not my relationship. What's the matter? You don't love your brother, Mookie, anymore? I love you, Jay. And as he's leaving, and I'm going to ask the maybe possibly the dumbest question I've ever asked in the history of the cinephiles, but as he's leaving, she says, yeah, brush your teeth, man. I, I brush my teeth. Your breath stinks. Did Mookie brush his teeth that morning? I don't think so. No. I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know why that seems to sum up a bit of his character. But it likes does to say, Mookie likes to say he does stuff and he doesn't do them. And then he blames her upper lip, which I think is a great thing. <laughs> Uh, and now we're going to see a big, huge car pulling up and we get to meet Sal and his oh, two sons. He's driving a white car. That's not a mistake. No. He's driving <laughs> a big, long white car, does the U-turn onto the street. It has that interaction with the Korean grocer there. And so very interesting introduction to these three characters here. And I see the Jamaican flag in the back. Oh, that's a good point. Well, yeah. Color control is so key in this movie. And one of the things is, Everybody's in these warm colors. Uh, the, obviously, the, the scenery is very warm colors, except for Sal, Vito, and Pino, and they're in cooler colors. Mm. You know, they're always going to be slight. And if you look at Sal's Pizzeria, it's green. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a different color scheme from everything else. Yeah. 
Apparently, Spike Lee originally wanted Robert De Niro. Yeah, he did. I totally understand why he wanted him. And I totally, that would probably have been my first thought too. And I'm really glad he got Danny Aiello. This is my favorite performance of Danny Aiello. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Wardrobe design I thought was really great because you have John Turturro wearing mostly black and a Mm -hmm. sliver of white, whereas Mm -hmm. his brother is half black, half black top and white bottom. So one of them is more confused. One's more solid on their dark stance and one's still... eh. And, and 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 I think that that's not by accident. I, I definitely think it's by design. Right. 100%. No, I was going to say, that's Ruth Carter who does the costume design in this movie, and she's the one that just, I think, won the Academy Award for Black Panther. So yep. still working, Ruth E. Carter, uh, bringing that uh, Black experience to life through her, through her work there, yeah. And we immediately get the dynamics of this family. <laughs> Sal <laughs> turns to Pino, John Turturro, and says, Pino, get a broom and sweep up front. Pino immediately <laughs> yells at his brother. Pino, get a broom and sweep out front. Huh? Get a broom and sweep out front. What? Get a broom and sweep out front! <laughs> and, and what's so fu- it's just the degree to which Pino does not want to be here <laughs> is high. Right. We'll go um, back to what Andre said earlier, right? Andre, you said this when we're talking about the love-hate and how hate can be like... Um, be an instigator rather than a unifier. And here is Pino right off the bat from the beginning, creating this environment of antagonism towards the job, towards his dad, towards the community, towards the black people who who come in there as customers without realizing that if his father hadn't run a successful pizzeria, that these black people who are the patrons, their motherfucker wouldn't have the clothes on his back, wouldn't have anything that he had gotten through his whole life. It is through the people who were who patronized the business, and maybe there's even a little resentment there that that's part of it. Uh, and clearly, there is resentment, historical resentment between Italians and um, African Americans in this country, and you've seen it documented in numerous films, certainly Spike films. Well, and that's what you know. The the incident, one of the ones that it's based on, was Italian Americans and African Americans. Right. I don't want to come to work anyway. I hate this freaking place. I detest it like a sickness. <laughs> and I love how Sal handles his son in this moment. Cause he, I mean, this is his pride and joy. This is the this is the thing he built, but he still handles it with a sense of humor. He says, you, you detest this place like a sickness. I mean, that's that's I really hate. You know, that's hate. <laughs> I mean, do you think you can do better? <laughs> no, I didn't think so. You see, Pino, this is a respectable business. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's funny and it's just brings their characters out perfectly. I remember being scared because I thought Aiello's going to snap. Like, you know, you've seen all those uh, movies with the Italians where they're talking to you normally and then suddenly they just smash your face in. And I was waiting for him to just snap, but he really tried his best to father his child. To You know, you saw the father figure in him throughout and and he just got worn down and worn down and worn down, and um, his you know lines when John's talking about how he feels about the pizzeria and the people, uh, you know I, I watched this film uh, again early in my LA days, and I, this is kind of a personal story, and I'll just tell you guys this, and <laughs> we'll see if she's listening. But uh, <laughs> I was dating a girl, and she was Italian, and I was in, I was in love with this girl. And I thought that this was the one. This is the one. I Before I met the real one, I thought this was the one. 
And uh, I was crazy about her. And, you know, I, I moved into the studio apartment. I moved out all my stuff. And we would watch movies together. And this was one of the things that was really personal to us. And she said, I'm going to go home and tell my parents that I met the one. Now, she goes home to her Italian mom and dad, tells her mom and dad that she's met the one. And they say, what does he do? He's an actor. Are you kidding me? And she said, well, and there's one more thing. And he's black. You're telling me this moly is who you're trying to... They, she never came back to LA, by the way. Oh so I had God. all her stuff. Wow. She never came back. All her stuff was in our place. She never came back. I had to ship her stuff back to her. Then I went to, to Philly to go talk to these Italian parents, <laughs> and they left Philly because they didn't want to see me. Wow. So wow. this movie really, you know, hit home. Obviously, everything worked out for the better, but the the way that Italians and Blacks, that, that that disagreement, that that divide was real for me in a way where I could, everything that John Turturro was saying, his character, I felt like I, that was her brother. I'm like, oh, I know this guy. Wow. This guy's real to me. Well, well, that's one of the things I think this movie does so well. It's it's like, I would call it the granularity of its racism. You know what I mean? It's not just yeah. white people and Black people. It's Koreans and it's these people and it's the difference with the Italians. And, you know, it's like it really goes into it and the last thing we hear sal say is i'm gonna kill somebody today right it's an offhand remark but yep. <laughs> you could argue down the road he is an indirect he is part of in, uh, indirectly to a murder to a killing yeah a hundred percent he is yeah. the contributors to the murder are it's a lot there's a lot of ingredients in this recipe agreed you know uh, but by the way, I was going to say this later, but watching it this time, the building dread I felt was so strong. Yeah. I, I, I stopped the movie multiple times. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to be there yet. Same. Same. Yeah. Like I can't do it. I can't do it. No, I can't. And that speaks to the, again, to the incredible work by Spike to make you care for these characters, make you connect to these characters and understand these characters. It, you, we, we don't go to the background. We don't see flashbacks. No. These characters are presented right off the bat. And because the script and the performances of these incredibly talented people uh, bring out fully fleshed characters that you immediately connect to and and follow and care about so that when stuff explodes at the end you are emotionally invested in what happens uh to these people it's brilliant like Rahim literally has conversations has no conference there's no parents no he doesn't go no. back home and we don't see what is radio Rahim's real dream in life none of that it's just the respect that everybody gives him we immediately by osmosis give him that kind of respect and and uh yeah. and power yeah well it, it's when he, spike manages to do a thing which is strange which is i think he manages to make characters that are both symbolic of a thing yes. but also fully humanized yeah you know what i mean Point, Steve. yeah absolutely and we see so mookie comes out he's walking down the street i love that there's some people that i'm assuming are christian jehovah's witnesses they're jehovah's <laughs> witnesses yeah, yeah. that he says hell no to <laughs> but steve what jersey is spike lee wearing Jackie uh, Robinson. That's right. He's in Jackie Robinson at this point. Again, not an accident. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then he goes and has a talk with mother sister, yeah. Ruby D. Good morning, 
Mookie. Good morning, Miss Mother's sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I don't want you falling out from the heat. You hear me, son? There, there's so many things that moved me in strange ways watching this time. Her saying, I'll be watching you, son. Mother's sister always watches. That just hooked me, you know? Well, once again, he's giving you that that window into you know the black community or any, any ethnic community really this idea of the elders watching the youngers because yes. they were once young they know what young people go through in a system that is designed not to let them succeed and so her watching over him in a way elders watching over the younger members of the tribe that's oh that's it's such a um a powerful thing to see here and of course both uh ozzy davis ruby d actually together in real life and were friends of spike's dad so that's how right. they came on to the movie. And this is also Spike's way of paying homage to those that came before him to lay the path to allow him to even be able to direct a feature film in Hollywood from a big studio. You know, so great stuff going on here uh, under the surface as well. well I love the I setup. I love the setup of, you know, the, the, the matriarch, mm. the sister, and the mayor. We, so right off the bat, we know who who's in charge here, uh, yeah. who are the figureheads, so to speak, yeah. And it is very much that way uh, in the black community, at least. I don't know about uh, the other communities, but it's very much. Community. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're sitting on the street, with the head out the window. Mm-hmm. That is exactly how it is. You know that there is a, a, a king and queen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What, what's so weird to me is that it, I had this weird thing of going like, even though I didn't have that experience and I grew up in the suburbs, I grew up in a neighborhood where yeah. everybody knew everybody. And when I, as a nine-year-old kid, walked down the street, there were people that, li- I knew everyone who lived in all the houses, they all knew me. And there was this sense of that I couldn't get out of line. You know what I mean? That yeah. people knew what I was doing. And I think about it with, my kid doesn't live in a neighborhood, you know, because he he lives online, his school is five miles away, the kids don't live around here. He doesn't have that experience. And that experience is really powerful. Uh, Mookie heads into Sal's. Late again, <laughs> and we immediately get all of the relationships come real clear, real fast. Mm-hmm. Mookie is fine with Vito; they're friendly at least. A lot of tension with Pino, and then that relationship with Sal. Why don't you relax, Pino? Take it easy. You live long. And what is the first thing Pino says? Yeah, take the broom. The front needs sweeping. Wait a minute. I just got here. You sweep. I bet you Sal asked you first anyway. <laughs> uh, and then we get into this, you know, the first of our conflicts, I would say, which is that Mookie refuses and he says, No, just fuck that shit. I live at Pizza's. That's why I get paid. We get paid to do what we say. There's something about Pino taking on the authority of his dad. Right. Like, Pino, you're not the boss. Your dad is the boss. Right, right. And then there's also this the way you're telling a black man, you do what we say. Yeah. I, it's, if it's very uncomfortable. For me, mm-hmm. you know. Not only that, here, take the broom and do, take you know, the broom. Yeah, and go outside and sweep. And and listen, the other guys got told to sweep too, so it's not like it was sure. just the black guy. But right. there was something about we know that he he he's already stated, I don't want to be here. I hate black people. Here comes a, his first interaction with a black character. Here, you go, take the broom, and go sweep. You do what I say. Right. Yeah, it is. It sets it up where you're like, oh. Yeah, because this, this yeah, a different connotation when your family member tells you to go sweep versus you telling someone else of a different ethnicity who is an employee 
to go and do whatever you want when you don't even pay his fucking check. Like there's a right. level yeah. of power dynamic here that you're trying to co-opt that you haven't earned in any way, shape, or form. So yeah. And to go back to the beginning, the boss told you to do it. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like yeah. yeah. Pino, it's so funny that all these characters are very complicated with very few exceptions. And, and Pino is the one whose complications are the least forgivable, I guess is the way <laughs> I would put that. Um, but you know what? Nobody has to sweep the, the front because in walks the mayor. Come on in, mayor. Morning, gentlemen. By the way, he was talking about Ruth Carter and the costumes. I love he's in that white suit and oh, the yeah. hat. It's, you know, no one else is dressed in white like this in the film. He's very different. And no one else is wearing a suit in yeah. the film. And Sal, I love how Sal treats Demare. Mm-hmm. I just love it. And Pino is on him. He's a good man. Leave him alone. And then he says, and this is obvious something that's happened, if not every morning, many mornings. Choose your weapon, man. And he grabs the broom. And then Sal says, You dropped something, man. And there's some money. <laughs> you are going to have the cleanest sidewalk in Brooklyn. Clean as the Board of Health. <laughs> and he goes out to sweep, and Pino says, Pop, I don't believe this shit. You running welfare or something? When I was younger, I, I didn't even quite really realize that his suit was... I, I, you see, you see, I saw blacks in my neighborhood wear a suit like that, but they weren't sure. drunks. It was just right. the suit they had. So your your perspective of him goes from this elevated king to like, oh, he's going to go sweep the sidewalk. Right. So Spike immediately downshifts our gears. Like, you think this guy's like uh, up here, and really he's he's yeah. not drunk. He just yeah. needs a dollar. But he's more than that. But that's what we we're like. Oh, okay. We're like, it's a reality check. And I remember thinking, I was a little heartbroken at the moment because I was like, oh, he's not. But I thought he was. Right. Well, and yet, in a weird way, he also is exactly what you thought he was. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what's so lovely about his character. And I'll tell you something else that really hit me this time. And I I know I mentioned on the show before that uh, my dad was an optometrist and he worked in the Mission District in San Francisco, which was the Latino district. And at the time he had his office there, it was uh, not, it was, you know, it was a lot of poverty and a lot of crime and a lot of trouble on the streets. And one of the things he, he was very much, He's not Sal, but he knew every single person on the block where he worked. He had relationships with all those people. And there were a lot of guys who were alcoholics, guys like the mayor. And they would come to my dad when they got their welfare check and they would sign their check over to my dad and say, I got to pay rent on this day. Don't give me the money back until I get because they were afraid they're going to drink it up. And so my dad was sort of the banker. I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 people that he was kind of the banker on the block because Everyone trusted him, you know, and so he had these relationships with a lot of people and he fucking loved that community. I mean, he just he had such deep ties to that community. And so I even though he's, you know, a Jewish guy who lived in Marin County, you know, he came from a totally different background, but cared a lot about the people that he was working around. Oh, and then that's the thing. When you look at this scene here, Stephen, you have the young kid, aggressive kid who hasn't really been out there in the world, hasn't really had to, you know, kind of work with the community, hasn't had to put food on his table for his children and his wife and do all these kinds of things. These are the things that you have to understand that it takes a community. It takes a village, for lack of a better term. And Pino is just like, and he speaks in Italian to his dad, which is even more of an insult because you know he's only doing that to insult him without the mayor knowing what he's saying in English. Uh, and then eventually, you know, it's, it's Danny doing what he's doing there step by step because... He respects this gentleman. He knows what it's like to be an older guy. He feels sympathy for this guy who, who, who things didn't work out in his life. And so, you know, uh, throw him a dollar or something. 
or hand him, sorry, hand him a dollar. It's not a big deal to him. Yeah. And he's a, he's a harmless guy and he's doing his thing and there's nothing wrong with the dollars. It's paying back to the community in a way. So, you know, and who knows? I mean, Sal, how long has that pizzeria been around? How long has he seen the mayor yeah. from probably an upstanding businessman who did handle things? When he mentions his kids later in the, in the conversation with young kids and then something happened. Did he fall into alcoholism? Did he lose his job? Was there some kind of racism involved? And in the end, yeah. this is what he ended up. So he's seen him through the stages of his life. And so to help him in that moment, it's an old thing between them, possibly. You know? Well, and the fact is, Sal is not a perfect person at all. No, right. But he yes. does have deep love for this neighborhood. Yes. You know. Yo, Ahmad! We are going to head off and meet a, a gang of young people sitting on a stoop that has some interesting faces in it. Yo, who's out here yelling my name? And they are in bright, bright colors. There's uh, Ahmad, who is Steve White. We have a very young Martin Lawrence here. And by the way... Um, Obviously, this is the hottest day of the year, but the weather does not always cooperate in your eight week shoot. And apparently the first two weeks of the shoot, it was pouring rain. Oh, yeah. And they didn't want to use their cover sets. And I'm sure, Andre, you've dealt with this is like a a cover set is something that in case it rains, we have an inside thing we can shoot. But if you use them all up early, if it rains later, you got nothing. So this scene on the stoop, it is pouring rain. And this is where Ernst Dickerson said he really, really learned how to create the feeling of real sunlight was from having to create it for this in the rain, because you would never know. I would never know that this was raining here. And then we start to hear Fight the Power for the first time since the title sequence. And there is Radio Rahim. Peace, y'all. Peace, Radio Rahim. Peace, man. This is Bill Nunn, who, who also went to Morehouse with Spike. Oh, wow. Spike describes him as a gentle giant. It is pouring rain behind his head. And you can kind of tell the sky's not blue. It's overcast. He, to me, and Smiley, are, it's almost like the Greek chorus. They're thematic. One comes in with Malcolm and uh, Martin. One comes in with fight the power and love and hate. And the presence of him is huge. And the way Spike films him, it's almost always in a low angle. It's frequently in a Dutch angle, which means it's tilted. The lenses are always wide lenses, which distort his face to some degree. And just make him that much more imposing everywhere he goes. Right. Radio Raheem, blasting that big box, cold rocking the scene. Now we're in the Korean grocers. And, and it's funny, there was just recently a podcast, and I forget what it's called. I should look it up. But it was all about the buildup and aftermath of the Rodney King beating mm. and the relationship between Korean merchants and uh, people in South Central. This is a real thing. And this is a real, real difficult, complicated, sometimes violent, often contentious thing. And we're seeing it play out right here in this film. Well, I think this is what's incredible about this film, guys. In 1989, you know, civil rights in the 60s into the 70s, it was like the general perception was we're moving forward, you know, and we signed the bill and all these things. And then the 1980s, we're all caught up with cocaine and bright colors and neon glow and John Hughes movies and all this kind of stuff. And we had ignored the black community. We all, we'd seen Eddie Murphy. This is funny, blah, blah, blah. Michael Jackson, Prince, you know, but there was piece by piece, step by step. There was this growing thing of rap, this growing 
reflection of what was going on in the inner cities that no one was talking about, right? Except for when it came to drugs or cocaine or crack and all of that stuff, which, you know, some people in the black community believe was created by the government to put into those communities to keep them in a situation, you know, much like uh, alcohol, much like alcohol with the Native Americans. There's, There's those things here. And then boom, we're opening our eyes more and more near the tail end of the 1980s again, you know, Platoon and all these films coming out to kind of wake us up to some of these social issues that are still a problem in our world and the advancement of thought on these issues as well. And Spike is hitting all of these throughout the movie. He is. This is a window into these things that are going on in these um, uh, communities and the anger and the frustration and the the different points of views that are going on with it. This, this film, I don't know why it struck me this time, maybe because I've become more educated since the film in 1989. Like these, the multiple points of views from multiple different people of color, sometimes the same color within the same community, having different points oh, yeah. of views in the situation is fascinating. And this is what makes the film timeless. This is what makes the film so good. And here, this idea of approaching the idea of other people coming in to co-opt places in the black community. Right nowadays, what it, or, or back in the early two thousands, it was uh, it was uh, Middle Eastern people coming over and owning gas stations. Right, Indian people coming over and owning the Seven Elevens. And there's always been this this anger at other cultures coming over, taking over convenience stores or businesses within communities. And there's a frustration that members of that community aren't doing the same thing. There's this built up narrative that somehow they're being locked out, but these other people of color coming over are being preferred by the government over the people in the actual community. So it's a fascinating thing to explore. And that was one of the tenets of Malcolm X's point of view. He's like, I don't want somebody to go back. So I'm not going to force a white owner of a business to go back there and make me food. That's that's he poisoned me. I want us to own our own shit in our own communities, run our own business in our own communities. And so you see this kind of pre- this subplot rolling through the whole movie. I, 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 I couldn't agree. I was like, yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You know how I am. I just, why, why are you apologizing? For sometimes John, do you know, John, my grandfather would not go out to eat because he felt that going out to eat, depending on who's back there, he could get poisoned. Wow. He would not go out to eat, and I, and he was poisoned once. Oh wow! And so he so from that one time, he had a chef, uh, like a cook. He would not eat anywhere but his house, wow. because exactly what you just said. Um, the real thing. Yeah. Contrast the mayor that we just saw at Sal's mm-hmm. with the mayor now in the Korean grocer when they don't have his Miller High Life. Where is the Miller High Life? No more High Life. You look what we happened by. No more highlight. He starts hurling racial epithets at yep. at the Korean grocer, right? Look, doctor, this ain't Korea or China or wherever you come from. You get some Miller highlight in this funky joint. The anger, the frustration, yeah. A, this is an alcoholic who's not getting his booze of choice, so that's part of it. Yeah, but sure. B, it's this is what Spike's gonna do from the through the whole movie. Is he's not going to let you just go, oh, that guy's awesome. Right. <laughs> he's not going to let you do that. And what do you guys think? Do you think he could do that scene with the Asians portrayed in that way in a movie today? And not no. Get, no. Couldn't do it, right? And I think part of it is with a bunch of the other characters like Demare, you spend mm-hmm. enough time with them that you see multiple facets. And you really don't with the Korean shop owners, you know? 
Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. And, and this is the thing that we've come to be really aware of in the in the 2020s of how many decades of film and television shows that we've seen um, from supposedly progressive people who don't have an issue um, making fun of Asian people, using Asian as the Asian people as the uh, as the punchline, as the joke. You know, especially in the 1980s, my God, Long Duck Dong, all of that. Giving a short round to me, I think, is a racist portrayal in Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. And this, and and, and even in this movie, you're right, Andre. He, there's no, there's no way you could do it now. You'd have to give them more life. You'd have to flesh these characters out a little more. You have to respect the Asian community a bit more. And so it's amazing how many people are waking up to how ca- how much of casual racism towards Asians that there is in our film and television shows now so much so that some of these have pulled some of these creators have pulled episodes off streaming services yeah. that do that so yeah it's a great point you yeah, bring I don't up even there. think they could even if they had life and breath and texture I don't think you could even talk that way the the yeah, accent right. I think yeah right. cool. oh excellent point that's a great point well what's what's so is that we used to think I mean it would be some people still do of course like someone not pronouncing stuff correctly who is not from that this country, that was a classic joke. Every yeah. single immigrant, that was a classic immigrant joke. And it's like, I, as a person who took some high school Spanish, does not speak another language. <laughs> would, of course, I would sound horrible in any language I tried to speak. What What is funny about this? Yeah. The, the, those Korean shopkeepers already speak more languages than I do, you know? <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, sure. And then we cut to it's a hard cut to uh, Ozzy Davis cracking the beer in the brown paper bag, and you see just a little shake of his hand. I mm-hmm. think is a just a little nice touch. Again, I know I've said it, but the the way that he gets up and close with these angles, his lips too are almost like longing for the for the for the can as if he was going to kiss a woman. Like yeah. his lips are quivering in, in rhythm with his hand. Like I need his lips need to touch the can. And then we hear, hey, you old drunk. What did I tell you about drinking in front of my stoop? And there is mother-sister in the window. And this relationship in this film is remarkable. Mother-sister, you've been talking about me for 18 years. What have I ever done to you? You are a drunk fool. Besides that. I would like a whole movie <laughs> of Demare and mother-sister. I want to know. I want this whole eighteen years. I want to know where these people came from. I want to know how what this relationship. I want to know it all. Why does she hate him? Not hate him, but why does she feel the need to to, to tear him apart? Did she? And she know gets his asked story? that later. She's like, "Why are you so mean yeah. to him?" Yeah, uh, Spike's sister does. Yeah, right. Exactly. The mayor don't bother nobody, and nobody don't bother the mayor. But you, the mayor, just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I, he doesn't love everybody. We just saw him in the Korean store, <laughs> but he does have a lot of love for the people of this neighborhood. A lot of yeah. love. I even love you. Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love. But I also go to, there's a lot to judge the mayor for. I mean, we don't know his past. We So we don't know what mother sister has seen in these 18 years. Right. You know? Right. Other than him probably being a drunk. One day you're going to be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're going to be nice, at least civil. And then I love that he kind of doffs his hat and smiles and walks away. (laughs) Yeah, mother, sister, and the mayor, man, these are like iconic characters for me. We're back. So we met her as a dancer, but now we're actually going to see her in the movie, which is Rosie Perez's Tina. And she's arguing with her mom because her mom can't babysit the kid. What are you talking about? Yesterday, you said you were going to. 
going to talk to you about this kind of thing? I've, I've, I mean, my sister is never going to listen to this episode, but like this I've witnessed so many damn times. Not that my sister had a child and was like, but like she does now, but like not at the time, but like this, these fights, this is uh, authentic fights in the Latino household between a daughter and her mom. And it gets quite brutal. It gets quite verbally <laughs> brutal. So I had that experience watching this movie. I was like, oh, I, I know that fight. The shit, by the way, that young Hector gets to listen to. Oh, my oh God. My. Poor young Hector. Yeah. Oh, my. Because what? He's like two or something. Two or, you know, he's he can understand what she's saying. Everybody makes me sick. Shit. Father ain't no real father. He's a bum. Now, we don't know who his father is at this point. Right, not at this point, no. Spike Lee describes the three guys we're about to meet as the corner men. <laughs> they are in front of a red wall. By the way, the production designer is Wynn Thomas, who I think does an incredible job in the film. Apparently, on many of the gigs that Ernest Dickerson got after this film, the first thing people will say is like, could you do something like that red wall? Mm. Like, people just love that. <laughs> and, and these three guys, we got Frankie Faison, who's playing Coconut Sid, Paul Benjamin as ML and Robin Harris as Sweet Dick Willie. <laughs> From people I have talked to, and I think actually it might have been Jay when, when we interviewed him for the last piece. Mm. He was just like, this is as real as you could be in certain communities, these three guys. Fuck Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson ain't shit. I remember when he mugged that woman right there on Lexter. Remember that shit. And you were going to tell him that? I'll tell him that. I ain't for fuck Mike Tyson. That's to his face. That's to you goddamn right. John, what did that make you think of? <laughs> uh, Will Smith's song with the DJ Jazzy Jeff Fresh Prince. was. I think I could beat Mike Tyson. That's what See, I See, I thought it would make you think of the barbershop and coming to America. Oh, yeah. I guess that's a part of it. Same year. 1989, I think both of those films are coming to America's 88, I think maybe, but still, how funny that they both have that uh, that uh, retort in there, yeah. Uh, apparently, Robin Harris was so funny that just everyone had problems just not busting up. Including he Tom. made his career off this movie. <laughs> what was yeah. left, you know, because obviously he died young, but he, he like Bebe's kids, all of that, Robin Harris off this one movie was able to kind of launch a little bit of a mini uh, stardom there uh, for the stuff he does. He is hilarious in this movie. And Mike has to dream about whooping my ass. He better wake up and apologize. Yeah. And then we get a weird thing about climate change. <laughs> and the ice caps melting, which is disturbing that that's actually <laughs> where we are. And I mean my boat. And you black asses are drowning. Don't call for me to throw you no rope, no lifesaver, mm. or no nothing. No nothing. Yeah. Hey, you fool, you 30 cents away from having a quarter. How the fuck you gonna get a boat? <laughs> <laughs> 30 cent away from having a quarter is a great line. Yeah. Sal and bugging out. Yeah. Giancarlo Esposito is, uh, he's one of my favorite actors. And this performance of his, it's for, for me, it's not the greatest performance of the movie, but it it is the performance of the movie in this weird way. Mm. Bugging out. I just, I love him. I don't know if I'd actually love bugging out, but <laughs> I love this performance. <laughs> Yo, stop with some cheese in that motherfucker, man. Extra cheese is two dollars. One of the things that's hard is understanding what the language of the place that you walked into is. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I personally, motherfucker is not a word, that, a phrase that comes out of my mouth, but I say fuck all the time. But I didn't say fuck all the time in front of my grandmother. Right. Saying to Sal, Yo, stop with some cheese in that motherfucker, man. That is not how things should be in Sal's pizzeria. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't think bugging out's trying to be insulting at this moment yeah 
But you know what I mean? Like part, part of what's going on in this movie is people's inability to understand the different culture that's right next to them. Yeah. And I also, and Jerry, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I also think it's fascinating. That Spike presents us with a guy who's a rabble rouser, but he's not necessarily who you want to see rabble rousing, right? Cause does he have a job? Who knows? He comes in there immediately to, to call to not, immediately just coming in there, causing trouble. Right. But what's the end result? What's he doing uh, with, with his world, with his life, but he's just causing trouble and looks on the wall and sees that there's no black people and immediately goes after Sal for that. So he may have legitimacy to his anger or to his upsetness, but how much of that is actually authentic and how much of it is for uh, attention, you know, because later when he confronts John Savage, all the guys around him are trying to instigate him to do something. And he keeps defaulting back to you lucky. I'm a righteous black man. You're lucky. I'm this, you're lucky. I'm that <laughs> just is a way of saying, I don't have the guts to actually fight you or, or get in your face or actually get into a, a thing with you. I just want to rabble rouse just for attention, you know? And so I wonder how much of that spike is making a comment about young people who want to be upset about something, but not do anything about it. Really? I just don't, I don't know. I think it's a brilliant assessment. And I think that he represents the angry black man. Mm. The angry black man is such a stereotype of in that time. And yeah. he is a combo of the angry black man that people are afraid of, but also as to what you ascertained, John, that he yeah. didn't do a darn thing when right. push came to shove. Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. It also, to me, really hit home because... He actually represented, again, my, my dad. My dad all, mm. It's so hard raising black boys. And my dad raised three black boys in South Florida. It's so hard. Everything he said is a lesson. Mm. And a couple of things. You can't get rich on demand. And you can't walk into someone's place and tell them what to do. Yeah. So he wants a black person on the wall. First of all, it's not his wall. He's coming to this guy's restaurant. He's demanding cheese on the pizza. He's yeah. all these demands. And like, it's very much what, what you have said already. Like young people making demands, maybe where they're demand, and they, they have the right to feel the way they do. Sure. But maybe not in the forum or the place or the arena to have a valid demand changed, to have the person change the way they're doing, they're living their life and operating their business. Like who, why does he get to decide who gets on the wall and it's not even his place, it, but he's angry about it. So really he's angry about something. And so Spike is showing that the anger that he has is so pent up it, that it's misplaced to the one place where he feels like he could get something done, which is cheese on the pizza and picture on the wall, which in reality is not going to change the world, but for, <laughs> for, for him is going to do something where he feels like, Oh, I, the man doesn't keep me down. I think, he doesn't feel that he has power and he's mm -hmm. lashing out at things that he feels has power over him. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's funny. So I've been thinking about all this a lot. And obviously there's a lot of shit that we're going to deal with as we go through this film. That's difficult. Yeah. And the film is called do the right thing. And the, the mayor is going to tell Mookie always do the right thing. And the question of what is the right thing right. is going to get hard. It's tough. And, and here's where I've come to it. First of all, by the way, Spike says that, Sal shouldn't have to put 
the people of black folks on the wall. Spike says African-Americans should get their own business and then they can put whatever they want on the wall. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Here's my opinion. I, I you know, John, you know me very well. I am very in the middle a lot of yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. I very look at multiple sides. I think that Sal does not have to put anybody on the wall that he doesn't want to. It's right. his wall. Right. I think that is what is correct. Mm -hmm. I think Sal should put black people on the wall. Right. That's and, what but, I think. It's not that he has why? to. But, but, but why should he? Right. Because, so again, he can do whatever he wants. Right. But he is a part of this community. He wants to be a part of this. It's like, it's not exactly the same thing. So, I, you know, forgive me if this sounds like I'm taking this to an offensive place. If you are making a movie and you go, I want to make a movie with all white people and I'm paying for it. And it's a movie about stuff that I know. Well, you totally have the right to do that. Hmm. But at this time in the world, you should be including other people, other voices. That is what you should do. It's my money. I can do what I want. But this is what you should do. That's I, my feeling about it. Right. But and and to kind of had, attach to this, Dre, to, uh, to throw a little more perspective here, I, I think it's a matter of the fact of how Bugging Out is presenting it. Absolutely. If, yes. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, if Spike Lee's sister in the movie, Joy Lee, who's actually, obviously, as Steve mentioned, right, is actually, if her character walked in and said to Sal, Sal, I've been talking to some people uh, here in the community, and they just feel like it would be good if we had some representations of ourselves on the wall as a kind of thank you for, you know, the, right. how we've kind of funded your business and, and patronized your business. Would you take that under consideration? Would you, you know, kind of look at that and can we come to an agreement on who could be on the wall? Blah, blah, blah. That's the presentation. Cause it's respect for what he's built. Um, and someone coming in who hasn't built nothing other than that hairstyle in his life <laughs> Um, telling him what to do with his business is is not the way you go about doing things. And I think Spike saying that he believes Sal shouldn't, uh, Spike Lee, the person saying that he believes his character Sal shouldn't have to put anything on his wall, I think that's where Spike is coming from. There's a way to present it yep. and there's a way not to present it. You know? Well, and it's his, it's, it's bugging out's behavior. So you come in, first of all, you, you demand you know, cheese on that motherfucking slice. <laughs> then he calls Sal cheap. Then he yes, just does, yes. he's yelling at him about the, the Italian Americans <laughs> on the wall. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some sex. Uh, I love the way he talks. I can't, I can't not, <laughs> like, I just hear it so much in his head. Yeah. And then this is what he does next. He has a napkin and he crumples it up and he throws it onto Sal's floor. Yeah. Right in front, throwing garbage onto the floor, which saying, hey, clean up after me yeah. while you're demanding something. It's like, no, fuck you. Get the, I'd be like Sal, like, get the fuck out of my business. <laughs> like, don't treat, don't treat me disrespectfully like that. Like, but bugging out's problematic. <laughs> I love him, but he's problematic. Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? You making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. And Sal grabs a baseball bat. Yeah, he does. Mm. Do you think Sal has used that baseball bat in the past? I think maybe once. I think he has. I think someone maybe tried to rob once? the store. Yeah. I, I think I think so. Here's the thing I find most interesting. You see who takes the bat away from Sal? Pino. It's Pino. Yeah. Uh, Mookie, 
Look, you want to get your friend out of here? Well, are you going to kick me out now? Are you, you going to kick me out, huh? No, I'm not kicking you out. You're kicking yourself out. What? Look, we want some brothers up on the wall, you Let's know? Go. Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, you're Michael Jordan. Tomorrow. Come on, you get him out, all right? I'm trying to get him out. Smiley, of course, is there watching because he's like Radio Rahim. He's this presence that we see throughout the film. And what does Bugging Out start yelling as he go as he gets pulled out the door? Boycott style. Go. Yo, boycott style. I want to go back to his directing here. Yeah. Nowadays, the more edits, the better. Yeah. According to studio, let's keep the audience engaged. Let's keep the pace up. <laughs> he doesn't. It's one single shot through the door. We go through yep. the screen, the, through mm-hmm. the screen, the mesh, yeah. Yeah. and we stay in a two shot. The entire conversation. He doesn't cut to OTS of either character. Nope. To me, it's just the patience and the faith and not only the writing, but in the letting the story evolve. And also, hey, audience, you're in this story with these guys. We're not, I'm not going to separate you from what's from the conversation. The, the directorial choices, again, to me, just blow me away because he's got so much confidence and he's on camera. So it's not even like he can watch it. Right. As it's happening, he's just really just his grapefruits, man. He's just got balls. He's like, hey, this is it. Yeah. This is the story and it's going to play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing, I'm so glad you brought this up because there, there's a ton of oneers in this movie, but they're not like the showy sort of Goodfellas touch of evil yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just he has the camera in the right place. And the other thing is you got to trust your actors. Yeah, you're acting. You know, they have to hit every single beat. What are you trying to do? What am I trying to do? What are you trying to do? Man, I want some brothers up on the wall. Man, man. I gotta work here, man. You fucking my shit up, man. You keep me inside, man. You fucking me up. I ain't trying to fuck you up, Mook. And this is one of the other. And this is I had to be educated to really understand the whether or not Mookie is siding outside of his race or where he stands and how that is playing out in the film. But this is part of that too, you know. I think he knows who bugging out is. I think he knows yeah. bugging out just loves to rile people up, loves to t- get into all this shit. And I think what he's saying is, dude, why are you coming in here messing up my shit? I got a child to feed. I got yeah. myself to feed. I got stuff like you coming in here talking all this shit and you don't actually believe half this stuff that you're saying, man, get out out of here. And, and immediately because of their relationship, bugging out, isn't mad at spy at a, at a Mookie. He's like, oh, I'm not trying to mess up your shit, man. I'm not trying to do this. He's like, come on, can we just, he's like, all right, man. All right, for you, I'll, I'll, I'll kill it. And then as he's walking back in, he says one thing to uh, Mookie, stay black, right? And this, this, yeah, I, it's so funny, this idea, because to me, what struck me this time around, I've never had this thought, is that Pino and Bugging Out are essentially the same character. That Pino is the Italian Bugging Out. He's angry, just angry about everything. Yeah. P- and Bugging Out is a rebel rouser who plays being angry about everything. And so both of them are unsatisfied people who've built nothing in their lives. And so they feel the need to exert their power, wherever, whatever illusion of power they might have, or they think they have wherever they can do it. And him telling Mookie to stay black while Pino is mad that Mookie is black is an interesting place that Mookie is in between these two people in his life. So it's fascinating. So, uh, I, I love that you said that. And, and the thing that amazes me that just occurred to me, also, these are two unbelievable character actors who have had oh, these yes. careers yeah. where they've shown they can play just a huge range of things. Like that's kind of, and this is the beginnings for both of them, yeah. you know, of their career. Uh, the other thing I, that really just occurred to me, 
we tend to get very emotional about things that are symbolic more so than about things that really matter. Yeah. Brothers on the wall is a symbol of a thing. Right, right, right. But it isn't the thing. Police treatment of African-Americans, that's a real thing, you know. Right, exactly. And it, and it might be that having better symbols will actually help educate us to doing better in general, but right. they aren't the same. He employs yeah. black men, but yet you're arguing about him not having black people on the wall. Yeah, yeah that's another yeah. great point. Yeah. And as Good Andre, point. you said, we are still in one shot because Mookie comes back inside and the camera tracks with him. I mean, this guy's your friend, right? I mean, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Is he your friend? He's my friend. Okay, if you don't behave, I don't want him in here anymore. He's out. I can't do nothing with him, Sal. And then Pino says, You talk some brother talk to him. <laughs> I, I, I love Spike. Just just that quick shot of Spike going, Brother talk? Like he's stupid. <laughs> he's stupid for saying that. <laughs> Look, people are free to do the hell whatever what, they wanted what, to do. What free? What the hell are you talking about free? Free? There's no free here. What? I'm the boss. No freedom. I'm the boss. You want freedom? There. That's, that's free. You take an order and you take it out. He's got an order there for you. <laughs> Is this the right address? Are you ask? Did you just ask me if this is the right? Did you actually ask me if this is the right address? <laughs> well, one time, you know, you. <laughs> yeah, right. One time, you gave me the wrong address. Get out of here. Mookie heads off to deliver some pizza. I am fascinated by Spike Lee, who he casts himself as, mm. because he. And we talked about this before, and are just talking about Spike, but he does not cast himself as heroic figures. He's, you know, no, he's never a, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. He's never someone you necessarily cheer for in any no. of his movies, right? Yeah, want to hear Spike's description of Mookie's character? <laughs> yeah, sure. lazy and shiftless. Wow, yeah. And as he's walking, we hear this is, I don't know why this moment is so amazing, but we hear, come here, doctor. I love, I love the, the mayor calls everyone doctor. This is the mayor talking. All right, all right, doctor, come on, what, what. Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. <laughs> I, you want to hear what I have in my notes here? I have the word discuss. <laughs> it, it's, so, it's so funny because, it, gosh, it's so accurate, man. You have the quintessential king of the block, the, the old timer who passes on knowledge to you. And when you're a kid, you're like, what, what is he even talking about? Yeah. But you sit and listen because if you don't, you know, you're going to get a whooping when you get home um, for being disrespectful. Uh, so, he, you know, they, they pass on these weird anecdotes to you when you're a kid. And you're like, what is this? And then you look back and you're like, wow, it actually had not only a lot of meaning, it was prophetic. And I wish I, you know, you go back and you're like, I wish I could talk to that old guy again when I was a kid. <laughs> like, I, I, I wish I could go back now and just have him talk to me, counsel me, because he has so much wisdom and just his experience. And, and and I love how Mookie's like, got it. I'm out. Thanks. But, yep. you know, blowing him off. Well, I, I remember when I had the epiphany that there's a difference between easy and simple. Mm. Like quitting smoking cigarettes is simple. Just stop smoking cigarettes. That was it. But it's not easy. That's how I feel about always do the right thing. That mm -hmm. sounds real simple. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. And this movie, what was the right thing? When did we turn wrong? And they're all these, it's all these little turns, yeah. you know, bugging out just did one of them, but Sal did too. And Pino did too, you know, like they're all these little things that are leading us to the tragedy that we're heading towards. Anyway, and when you talk about always do the right thing, you know, like you said, the tragedy, one would argue that sometimes even what you do is the right thing. It, it leads to tragedy in itself, yeah. you know, 
when he opens up the door, golly, it's just like, oh, just don't open the door. But anyway, yeah. Oh my we'll, god, we'll get oh, there. It's the worst, the worst. Oh, when he opens that door, and well, the thing too, I know we're gonna get there. He opens that door out of love. Yes, that's what I'm saying. He did the right thing. He did the right thing and let the gates of hell open upon his own establishment. It was brutal to watch, knowing that it's coming. That one, tonight, when I get paid. We see, as you mentioned this before, mother, sister, and Jade on the stoop. She's doing her hair. I didn't know you had such beautiful hair. Food has a lot in this world you don't know. And I love that he goes, I'm not stopping. I'm on my way. <laughs> and again, the hat, and he heads off. And this is what you mentioned before. Father, sister, why are you so cruel to the mayor? It isn't right. I ain't studying no man. He <laughs> reminds me of my least favorite peoples, my tenant and my ex-husband. God damn. That's all we get to know. Ooh, yeah. We're moving into a montage. We see the newspapers talking about how hot it is. We hear like a reggae beat. You can't stand it. I know you can't stand it. And we have just beautiful shots of Rosie, like the first one, looking up through the ice water at Rosie Perez's face. Oh, my goodness. I was trying to think how they did that back then before GoPros were a thing. You know, I I, I know how they did it, but just it's it's the ingenuity to pull that shot off for this type of movie, yeah, you know, it just was, uh, again, Spike Lee. Well, this is the thing about great films. And, you know, John and I have been talking about this for six years now. It's yeah. putting in the effort to, like, it didn't matter. You could have shown her from above dunking her head in water, and the audience would have understood the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And putting in the extra several hours to figure out how to do it this way is better. Yeah. You know? And there's so many moments like this. We have uh, another group that we haven't spent much time with. There's a group of Latinos. I'm assuming they're Puerto Rican. Yeah, I think. I think. So. Yeah. And we seen the crack- Jamaican flag earlier and the Puerto Rican flag next to each other when the Cadillac pulls up. So I think oh. they're right. Yeah. Um, and they're cracking some beers. And then we're going to open up the fire hydrant. Yeah. I never lived anywhere where this is a thing that happened. Me either. Me neither. Yeah. It looks fun, man. <laughs> Uh, and we see some people scraping cans on the concrete. Apparently, Spike Lee used to do that. Wow. That was how he, this was a, this was the thing from his childhood. And their kids that start playing in the water, and they start using those cans to spray the water. People are laughing. We see some of our like gang of guys picks up one of the girls and drags her into the water, and she's screaming but laughing. And the mayor's in the background. And I think just emotionally, this is like a high point of the film. This is the community all together. This is the joy of the hot day and then it's going to get it's going to turn like a lot of things are going to and then up walks radio rahim and i'm going and they've got the can like i think it's martin lawrence who's got the can on the fire hydrant i'm going are they going to spray radio rahim (laughs) answer oh no they're not he gets by fine and then we hear a honk well don't be fucking with the water now and there is a big, huge convertible, and Frank Vincent, yeah, who's obviously been in lots of Scorsese movies, been in The Sopranos. I can't get De Niro, but I get Frank Vincent. <laughs> you get Frank Vincent, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I just, I just made it is that he is like bugging out because he starts off pissed off and angry, mm-hmm. and he's immediately rude and disrespectful as he's telling these people not to shoot the water at his car. Yeah, 
And they're going, no, no, go ahead. You could drive by and you know where we're heading. Yeah. And what I find interesting is a whole, bu- a whole bunch of people got dragged into the water against their will to get wet. Yeah. Uh, including Smiley, including some of the girls, including some of the kids, not Radio Rahim. No. Nope. And so in one sense, all they're doing to this guy is what they did to all these other people. Well, no. I think yeah. <laughs> it is convertible. I mean, they ruined his car. He says it's an antique. Yeah. Rather than respecting the, him, they, they in essence, are attacking him with that water. And they so oh, yeah. him. Who knows what they've ruined? If they ruined his car, ruined his clothes, who knows? So to me, it's a violation what they're doing. I get it. They're young kids and young people listening to this might be like, oh, cut it out, old man. But no, I mean, I'd be super pissed if they fucking doused me with water. Oh, but then sure. what I think is fascinating is his interaction with the cops who were just well, like, well, I, yeah. yeah, but before I know we get you're going to the get there, but I'm just saying that's yeah, my no, no, no. I, I, cause, cause I feel but it, this is this way I went, Oh, this is like a microcosm of Sal's famous. Here's this guy that loves this inanimate object, yeah. you know, and here, and it's going to get messed up. And I'm with you, John. I don't, yeah. if I say don't, I firmly believe that people have the right to their space. And if you <laughs> say, don't mess with my thing, you shouldn't mess with my fucking thing. Right. But I also think he's an asshole. Oh no, fair enough. Yes. Yeah. I don't personally go asshole should be punished. I know some people who do think that like they need to get their comeuppance. I don't feel that way, but it's like, dude, if you had a pro, just like you said about if Jade had gone to Sal and asked for other pictures on the wall, if he had gone, hey, fellas, looks like you're having a great time. I don't want to mess up your thing. But if you, if you don't mind, I just want to drive through real quick. I really don't want to have. It might have been okay. And maybe just back the fuck up and go down another yeah, route. Go around. He, could, he could have made a left. There's a left Make turn a left, dude. right before. <laughs> exactly. So, but they do spray him. They do soak him. The cops roll right up. And this is, first of all, uh, the big guy is Rick Aiello. It's Danny Aiello's son. Yeah. The other actor is Miguel Sandoval. Yeah. And what I love about this is they are almost the opposite of what we are going to see from them later on. Yeah. You happen to catch the name of the suspect. Fuck you, their name. Mo and Joe. What do I know their names? Mo and Joe what, sir? It is terminology goes from kind of racist to much more so. And they are just making a joke out of it. Yeah, and once again, Spike presenting us characters that we initially think, oh, they're part of the community. They get it. Even yep. Aiello, as he's closing it up, going, I better not come back here and find you guys to turn this on again. There's going to be hell to pay. We're just thinking, oh, that's a police guy. He's just warning them. It's standard. It's his job. He has to go right. close the thing off. Of course. Yeah. It's, and he sort of is irritated by having to do it. Plus, we're in a drought. So they're being really considered about using the water yeah. in this way, So, which is announced at the beginning of the movie yeah. by... Uh, Sam Jackson. Uh, uh, and so in that moment, you think, okay, and especially Sandoval's like smirk, right? When yeah. he's talking to Frank Vincent. And did you get the names? Yeah, Mo and Joe. Uh, Mo and Joe, what, sir? Uh, Mo and Joe Black. How about that? Uh, were they brothers? Are they were brothers? He goes, yeah, yeah, they're brothers. They're brothers. You know, and so it's, it's, it's a funny exchange. So initially, you're like, okay, these guys get it. They're part of the community. This guy, clearly, probably Frank Vincent has driven through this community and said some shit or caused some shit in the past because they seem to know him when they're dousing him so you get that and so but then later as you said steve when things happen you're like what the fuck are these the same people and it's causing you to have a lot of thoughts when you're watching this movie which i really appreciate again from spike and how he wrote these characters these are not one-dimensional characters or caricatures and so that's why the movie works so as effectively as it does and i was scared when i watched it i thought he was going to come back and you know 
and and oh, I thought Vince? he was going to be the oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, he's the guy who's going to come back and and uh, and and <laughs> burn this thing to the ground. But really, he just represents like, okay, this is where conflict is truly beginning between right. the blacks and the Italians. This is the marker where you look back like this is the. Right. It's outside of the other characters who we've met, but it's significant enough to where it involves the police. Yeah. And like uh, you were saying, John, too, the kids knew that they were wrong. They okay. ran away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, and this is the thing that I, I, has really struck me as I've been, as we've been kind of digging into Spike Lee, is that he has a reputation. He's the angry black man, you know, that, that's, that his films are violent or intense or combative or whatever. And what I see that impresses me so much is just deep love. Is that even for people like Pino or this Italian guy or the cops, he still is trying to find their humanity on some level, you know, like he doesn't paint them as just villains, even though they do horrible things, particularly the cops, you know. And and let's tell the truth. Why is he portrayed this way as the angry critic? It's because it's a predominantly old white male. Yep establishment at the time of criticism and that hasn't changed that much it's now changing over the last uh five years as an official critic myself seeing the change has been nice but in the past that has basically been the people deciding how to interpret certain directors or writers or producers or actors and how to see them and so they saw spike as the angry black director when in fact he's he was be creating these masterpieces that explored stuff that these guys didn't want to explore that didn't make them feel good about their country or about their history of their country. And, uh, and so I, I would love to destroy that stupid narrative once and for all about Spike Lee. He is a master filmmaker. He is not the angry black man. He's not bugging out quite. He, in, he um, delivers such nuanced, interesting uh, uh, films here that challenge you as a viewer and get you to think at a, at a more than surface level. And the great ones do that, you know? Absolutely. Well, and I think because this is like a moment that could have been a big conflict with the police that this and it is in some ways a foreshadowing of what is the tragedy that we're going to get to at the end. Uh, I think this is a good time to end what I think will be the first part of probably a three part exploration of Do the Right Thing. And frankly, I can't think of a movie that deserves this level of exploration as much. Um, as always, we'd love to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, Instagram, the Cinephiles podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or all of them. Have a bunch of subscriptions. It doesn't matter to you, but it helps us. And what helps us even more is leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. You can buy or stream, uh, do the right thing along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on Cinephiles.net. And I cannot thank enough our incredible guest, Andre Gordon. This has been an amazing conversation so far. Thanks, thank you. Ray. Thanks, guys, for having me. I can't wait to finish this out. And, and and you guys rock. Honestly, I love what you guys are doing. And just to be a little part of that, pretty cool. Thank you. Are, are you in the world of social media? If people wanted to follow you or see some of your work, how would they do that? So, yeah, I definitely use social media. You can find me on Instagram, which I use predominantly. It's at Andre Gordon Official. And that's actually my same handle for my TikTok. On YouTube, you'll find my, my channel, uh, Four Horsemen Studios, where you can see different movie reviews that I do, two-minute reviews, and uh, different short films. And then a lot of my work you can find on Netflix or Amazon, 
uh, different feature films like Wedding Day, You Can't Have It, which John is in. Uh, some really bad cross comic book movies that Sony's greenlighting for us for some reason. We're on number four right now with Brian Austin Green, Danny Trejo, and Vinnie Jones. I'm also on, I just opened a Twitter on for my studio, for Horseman Studios. So that's where you can find me. That's fantastic. Uh, John, yes. where, t- tell us about yourself. Oh, well, you can always find me uh, <laughs> at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, and then on Twitch, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, doing a lot more stuff on there. And then um, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says that's the Outlaw Nation uh, outlet. You can go and find all my reviews and uh, shows and all the stuff I do there as well. And then my other podcasts, uh, the uh, Top Ten and the Geek Buddies, they're out there for people to consume. And I'm SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're into Star Trek, then you obviously are already subscribed to Enterprise Incidents. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. You were already there already. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back with part two of Do the Right Thing next week on The Cinephiles. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.